What's up, everybody? Sultan of Strangles here. And today I ended up interviewing probably one of my favorite strength coaches on Instagram. His name is Coach Steven Sayun. He's shredded out of his mind and he works with a lot of high level athletes. And I really uh, agree with a lot of his philosophies. So this episode, we talked a lot about these underlying philosophies. I thought it was a really fun episode. If you have any questions, he uses a lot of fancy lingo that you guys might not know. So if you don't know, just DM me and I'll explain it. Um, I definitely learned a lot from this episode and I had a lot of fun. So if you want me to bring more strength professionals on this podcast, let me know. But before you do that, guys, you know what you got to do, right? Go give my podcast an honest rating on whatever platform you're on, Apple, Spotify, whatever. Go follow me, K-O-O-L-R-A-K, Immortals Jiu-Jitsu, and Rambling with Rack on Instagram. And a bunch of people reached out to me. They're like, hey, man, we got your Instagram. We have no idea who you are. My Facebook is M-I-K-E-R-A-K-S-H-A-N, Mike Rakshan, which is my name. Very few people know that. I didn't know that. Um, I've got two instructionals on BJJ fanatics that are doing better than I ever thought they would. The first one is Sultan of Strangles scarf hold series. The second one is Iranian body lock systems, weapons of past destruction. If you want to learn how to crush your opponents with body lock passing and the camel crusher, go purchase those and give me a little testimonial on a rating. Thank you so much, guys. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. What's up, everybody? Sultan of Strangles here, and today we have a very special guest, one of the best strength coaches in the industry. I personally know two of the athletes that he trains, and he was able to rehab them through some really crazy knee injuries, um, and I've been watching his work for a while, uh, so today we're going to be interviewing him, uh, and it doesn't just have to be about strength, it'll be about a lot of things when I answer some of your questions. Please welcome Coach Steven Sayun. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on. Hell yeah, man. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to start off from the beginning, you know. Um, what got you into the world of strength training, rehab, uh, mobility, flexibility? Okay, so... Obviously, growing up as a kid, I was always active. I played sports my whole life. Uh, I then, um, after enlisting into the army, I was looking for, I guess, the next thrill, something to test me physically. I got into CrossFit uh, at a young age and experienced a whole heap of niggles and injuries. And then so, from uh, CrossFit, real quick, can I interrupt you? Yeah, sure. 
Tell me what the word niggles means, because in the U.S., if, if you say that on the wrong block, man, <laughs> you, if you say that word on the wrong block, you ain't coming home. Okay, fair enough. All right, so I'll, I'll clarify what uh, niggles means. So basically, it's just like, for example, how do I explain this? So, you know, let's say you're wrestling one day and, you know, you tweak your arm. It's nothing major. It's not a serious injury. It's just like perhaps you may have a little bit of tendonitis in your elbows. That's a niggle. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. It's, something, it's something that is like, it's a slight injury. It's a slight, um, it's, not a, it's not a big injury where it's going to sideline you and you're going to be forced to work with a physio to, to perform, you know, weeks of rehab to get you back to sport. It's something you can kind of deal with and just work through along the way uh, with your strength and conditioning work. And it's, it's something that should subside over the next couple of weeks with some good training. That's a niggle. And those things happen frequently in combat scenarios and sports. We just call that tweaking something. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so it lingers, right? Once you tweak, once you tweak it, if you don't jump on it straight away, it kind of lingers and then it can manifest into something bigger if you just keep training on it, not reducing your training load, monitoring your fatigue, your recovery, and everything that works around that that niggle or that tweak. Yeah, that that I've seen that way too much in the sport of jujitsu. First it's shoulder pain, then it's a torn labrum, then it's this and that, then they're out for a year. Correct. And that seems to be the common trend I see in grappling sports at the moment now. As it is, it, look, to be honest, BJJ is starting to come up now. Uh, people are more, you, you look at the level, the level's just exploding year on year. People are just getting better. You're seeing more freak athletes into the sport and do really well. And I think that the strength and conditioning side of things is, you know, not relatively where, you know, it should be. It's a slow grind, but people are starting to see the value in performing indirect training uh, to, to cater for their sport. 100%. But real quick, you skipped one part that I was actually pretty interested in. Uh, you said you played sports growing up. What did you play? So, believe it or not, I was a, I was a national level um, Taekwondo competitor. Oh, wow. Nice. So, uh, I used to be quite flexible. I don't know what's happened now. Uh -huh. um, and then I was a state level sprinter in school. So, I was a really good runner. Played basketball, played a little bit of rugby. It's too small for rugby. And then, obviously, leaving, leaving that uh, sector, got into the workforce and then joined the army. And that's how I fell into strength and conditioning. Nice. So um, what, how does the Australian army work? Because I know different countries are different. Like in Iran, when you turn 18, you don't have a choice. You're going in the army for two years. Um, in the U.S., it's 100% volunteer. So you go, and if you go, they will pay for your college. And after your four years, you could attend college. What, what's it like in Australia? Well, wow. okay. So, well, it's definitely not compulsory here. It's definitely a choice. Mm -hmm. um, so, I volunteered to go in full time. So, there's no compulsory, um, you know, entry here. And uh, you volunteer. Basically, you choose the core that you want to go into. And then you sit down and you do a, an aptitude, aptitude test. And uh, you see whether you're suitable for the role. Based on that, you go through a medical screen process. 
and then you can basically enlist to do a fitness test. The fitness test is fairly easy. It's a very, you know, low entry. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it has to be because, you know, you wouldn't get many people signing up if the, you know, the bar of entry yeah. is too high. So that that's what usually happens. You sit down, you go through your full medical and your physical test, and then you're enlisted. It's pretty simple. It, there's no real... Um, you know, big setbacks. One thing I would say, though, on the medical screen, if you're a liability, they do make that very clear. You can't wear orthotics. Uh, you can't have pre-existing injuries that are going to perhaps maybe cost the government um, a lot of money if you were to, you know, to get injured in there where they would be forced to, to pay you um, a certain compensation. So once you enlist, it's a minimum serving of four years. And um, you get paid while, while you're in there, obviously. And the, the role that I went into as an infantry soldier, you don't come out with much experience and you, don't, you can't really come out and get a normal job, right? There's not, there's not many options coming out with... Um, what made you choose infantry? Because in, um, in the US, we have riflemen, machine gunners, um yep. snipers and then anyone who's not that they get they get called pogues which is people yes. other than grunts and they don't get that's, any respect that's pretty much the exact same terms we use here oh you go you could call them pogues too yeah we call them pogues that's well. funny yeah so i went in as a as a rifleman mm -hmm. and i transitioned into heavy weapons so i was a machine gunner okay I didn't see any combat, so it sounds cool. It wasn't that cool. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I did get to, you know, play with a large machine gun for a big, you know, uh, portion of my time in the military. I was training three times a day. Uh, I was very fit. Uh, I loved it. I had a purpose. When you um, say training three times a day, what do you mean? So I performed physical activity. So basically we would do group PT in the morning. And then um, at lunchtime, I would do my own training. And then in the evening, I would go and do some CrossFit. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, early days before I was a PT, became a PT, that's what uh, I would do. So, basically, live to train. That's, that's all pretty I did. cool. Live. Yeah, live to train for, like, a football game that you're never going to play. <laughs> Interesting. But you said it was, it was different. You had a purpose in that. Well, I, my purpose was training for me. I was like, okay, this lifestyle is something I could get used to. Like, I really enjoyed pushing myself physically um, out of my comfort zone. And I found a lot of personal growth in that. Nice. Not only, not only from a physical perspective, but more a mental perspective. And um, I guess CrossFit was the closest thing I could find to, to recreate that that, uh, you know, physical exertion where I, I was really tested to the limits where I didn't have anything else. So that's what I kind of liked achieving. I was kind of addicted to it. I still am in certain ways. <laughs> I don't think it ever leaves you. And, uh, you know, it's probably a good addiction to have to some point. Hmm. Addiction to just training? Yeah, I guess, you know, training makes me feel good. It's a big portion of my life. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, if I don't get to, to train as frequently as I'd like to, I do get a bit edgy and a bit restless. And you know, Oh, yeah, I'm just bit, homicidal when I don't train. It's bad. Pretty, pretty much. And that's why, you know, when people get injured and they get sidelined, man, there's, there's always a way to train around it. There's always something you can be doing in order to, to keep you sane, uh, to keep you physically fit. And they work hand in hand, you know. There's always, there's always a way around it. And I just think if, you know, you can focus on what you can do and not what you can't, you know, you, you're going to live, um, you know, a better life where adopting that mindset will just, you know, provide you with solutions instead of roadblocks. Exactly. So as far as CrossFit goes, what are your thoughts on CrossFit now? Look, my, my thoughts on CrossFit have changed a lot. Like, when I walked into a CrossFit the first day, I never went back. Right. Look, <laughs> it depends. Like, at the end of the day, you can look at this from multiple angles looking at CrossFit. Mm -hmm. If you look at it from someone who's, we call it like the hybrid athlete, right? Where they're working both ends of the spectrum and gaining results from both ends of the spectrum. Now, if we break, break down both ends of the spectrum, let's call it the strength continuum, right? And we use this in strength and conditioning terms. So you've got relative strength. An example of relative strength might be a deadlift, you know, a one rep max back squat. You know, there, it's a slow lift where you are producing a large amount of force and you're moving a weight you know, intentionally as fast as you can and you're working to a maximum strength point. Yes. Then on the other hand, you've got complete endurance, right, on the other side. And, and an example of complete endurance, let's say it's a 10K run, right? In basic terms of uh, strength training or just the fitness industry in general, there's a lot of, you know, social uh, so-called fitness enthusiasts that demonize cardiovascular training for you know, will inhibit your strength markers in the gym. Uh -huh. Well, if you look at these CrossFit guys, they're absolute freaks, right? They're yeah. Fucking, you know, deadlifting three times body weight and they can run 10Ks in a decent amount of time. So it just depends how you structure your training. And I think that CrossFit as a sport in a whole, you know, it does bring a great community. Um, if you look at the work capacity that is done in the amount of time that these guys are doing, no wonder why they're jacked, ripped and fit because they're working at levels and producing such amount of, of, of a large uh, work capacity in a short amount of time, you know, you're definitely going to get like physical results that way. However, for the general population who just want to move a little bit better, you know, and obviously feel good and lose a bit of weight, put a bit of muscle on, you know, would I be, you know, doing, you know, high complex lifts, you know, with large amounts of volume under fatigue? Probably not, right? Yeah, because I remember when I first tried CrossFit, <clears throat> what it was called. It was called like 13-1 or 13-2. And then um, I learned how to do the clean and press and uh, the snatch in Iran. And my coach there, you know, that's like the number one capital in the world of, for weightlifting. They're like... You want to go one rep, reset, rest, do it again because the reps have to be perfect. And then I go, they're like, all right, we're going to do the snatch for time, as many reps as you can for two minutes. I'm like, what the fuck? 
Yeah, man. Yeah. I feel like it could be a little dangerous, no? Look, I'll tell you what, man. Like, it's dangerous for the general population who are new to Olympic lifting and don't have the prerequisites to lift um, moderate amounts of weight under fatigue in a short amount of time, uh-huh. especially with, with a high complex open chain movement such as a snatch. Yeah. Right? You don't take someone off the street who sits behind a desk for 40 hours a week, you know, who used to be fit back in the day, can, and who struggles with shoulder flexion, has a terrible squat, and you get them, you know, performing touch and go power snatches, you know, max reps in two minutes for something. Probably not ideal, right? And I'm not saying all gyms do that. I mean, I was a coach in the industry for four years. I ran two gyms and we we had scaled options where I would definitely go in and regress exercises in order to suit a client's needs and work within their limitations in that class. Uh-huh. I don't I don't think all gyms are like that, right? And the funny thing is like you don't do CrossFit in order to get good at CrossFit, right? Mm-hmm. And that may sound weird to some people. It's like, well, if we focus on energy systems and we, we you know, produce, like, let's create, let's, let's have the application where we can create the right adaption we're looking for through mixed modal intervals, right? So you would choose, for example, exercise variations that elicit the right adaption that we're looking for so such as a russian kettlebell swing a burpee an air bike those um, those variations of exercises they will get your heart rate up nice and high but they're very low complex so yeah the, the complexity to execute these exercises are fairly safe and very low entry but can i get a good positive dose response that i'm looking for yes i can i can get someone's heart rate up really high there's very low complexity in those movements. Therefore, we can obviously get you fit using those those variations within an interval setup where we can target a certain energy system. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's and that's where a lot of the like guys like um, back when I was doing it, I worked with coaches like James Fitzgerald from OPEX Fitness. I worked with uh, Michael Fitzgerald. And these guys were like the pioneers across back in the day. And they were the first to adopt a strength and conditioning system for CrossFit athletes where you would avoid, not avoid burnout, but you would just do it in such a better way to build more longevity in the sport to be able to, to, to hit these CrossFit workouts at, you know, more intensity without being broken before you got to say the CrossFit open or, you know, the regionals or a high level of competition. Yeah. I mean, what I noticed is uh, every CrossFit gym had their own culture. Some of them just go look at the workout of the day on the website and do it. Some of them are a little more geared towards powerlifting. Some of them geared more towards Olympic lifting. I noticed it was kind of like a gym to gym basis a little bit, right? Correct. Look, and we, we did the same thing. We had Olympic lifting classes and I think it's important because you need to learn a skill such as if you're, if you're in a CrossFit gym, the only way to really learn Olympic lifting, right, is in a controlled environment where you're not spazzing out under fatigue. Yeah. It's like, for example, like 
you're a grappler, right? Yeah. And you're new, you're new to, to freestyle wrestling. You jump into your first freestyle wrestling class. And the first class is double leg takedowns. And like, all right, guys, we're going to do double leg takedowns for the next fucking hour. And we're going to spar it. And then you're going to react to it. And then you're going to do, you know, in some gyms, you're going to go a minute all out just doing, you know, penetration steps. And this guy struggles doing a fucking split squat, right? Yeah. And you get him overloading that movement pattern really fast at high velocities where he can't even, you know, doesn't even have a base level of strength to achieve the position. It's only going to cause a lot more harm than, than any benefit. So it's, it's the same thing. Like you've got to learn how to crawl before you can walk. It's the same systems with strength and conditioning, right? There's a reason there's a progression model in there. There's a reason why certain exercises are harder than others. And, you know, you, as a coach, you should have at least three regressions to a movement for, for any exercise, I believe. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's some, there's a lot of exercises there that I did not know were the regressed version. I thought they were the more advanced version, but they're actually the more regressed version. I yeah. thought the barbell was the least regressed, the most regressed of them all. And I found no single leg is more regressed. Am I right or wrong about that? Well, a bar, the barbell is more of a constraint, right? Yeah. So it's, you're going to be performing bilateral movements with a barbell majority of the time. Yeah. So, for example, like within CrossFit, you're going to be doing sagittal plane-based movements. So you're going to be hinging, squatting, pulling. Uh, you're going to be pushing overhead. And majority of the time, it's going to be under a barbell where you're kind of, your body has to move around the bar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Where you put a dumbbell in someone's hand or a kettlebell, and you perform it unilaterally or single arm, single leg, you've got a lot more freedom of movement. Therefore, you know, you can get away with more variations and give a client more options mm -hmm. where potentially the skill and the execution is a little easier, but therefore the detrimental side to that is you can't put as much load through. Yeah. So that's why, you know, there's, there's progressions and regressions, right? For example, if, if someone's new to, to CrossFit and there's Olympic weightlifting involved, and let's say there's power cleans and they're new to it, you can do a, you can do a dumbbell hang power clean, right? With dumbbells. Yeah. It's just an, an, a simpler way of, of training a similar movement pattern. It's not the same. Uh, and you're performing it with dumbbells that takes out the constraints of the barbell. 100%. Same with like deadlift and squats, you know, doing Pretty the kettle, kettlebell and then adding the barbell. My issue was um, I grew up with a barbell set. So I think from age 12 to like my mid-20s, I was doing mostly barbell. And because of that, I have a massive discrepancy in strength between my left and right side. I, I just look honestly... This is a, you're going down a deep, dark rabbit hole here now. Okay. Uh -huh. So asymmetry is normal. Really? Like, like massive have, asymmetry? Well, it depends. I don't know how massive the asymmetry, if there's a big strength discrepancy between left and right. Uh, let's say, for example, um, you can, it's actually quite noticeable. Then, yeah, maybe you need to do some more single leg work to be able to bridge the gap between left and right sides. Mm -hmm. That being said, 
Uh, sport will expose you to a lot of asymmetry, and asymmetry is needed to be good at a sport. For example, tennis players, golfers, you know, boxers, MMA fighters, grapplers, you know, you'll pull guard to one side, you'll, you'll, you'll pass guard on one side, you know, and it's just the nature of the sport, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what you do in the gym, you know, you can fill in the gaps and counteract some of that stuff. And I usually find that, for example, if you rotate better to one side, it's good to be able to start with rotation on the opposite side in the gym in order to, to get more out of the, the dominant side, right? Interesting. So let's say, for example, you're, you're an orthodox boxer. Uh, you predominantly spend most of your time in an orthodox stance. Investing time into a southpaw stance and you know, building rotational capacity and lower limb strength and, you know, trying, trying to, to spend more time in the opposite side will have a carryover to the more dominant side. So, so here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the even deeper part of that rabbit hole. Let's say the asymmetry is helping me become a better athlete. Why would I want to even balance it? Because it'll make you even more of a better athlete. Okay. Right? So if you think about it, You've got, let's say, for example, you're a baseball player, right? And you're a, you're a pitcher, right? Your right leg you is all, your left leg's always going to be stronger if you're a righty, right? Because you're always basing on that well, leg. If you look, let's say you throw, with, you throw with your right arm, yeah. right? You look at the amount of shoulder ER. You look at the amount of shoulder flexion, the hypermobility in that shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they're only ever going to throw with one arm. Yeah. They're never really going to use their left arm. So that's where it becomes, well, if I do left, you know, left arm shoulder, you know, seated dumbbell external rotations, it's going to strengthen my, that's bullshit. That's not going to work. So from a rotational standpoint where you're using more of your body, for example, not just the arm, but if you take a picture and the amount of thoracic rotation, hip internal rotation, you know, that, that goes into, you know, like throwing a ball. It's generated from their lower body as well. They're yielding and overcoming force. If I train a similar movement pattern, such as the rotational demands, obviously using ballistic methods like med ball throws and things like that, and I train the opposite side, it's going to help, right? Okay. It's, it, you would be stupid not to do it. Now, when you say it's going to help, in what way? By just balancing your body out? Pretty Well, pretty much, right? If you, if you have, like, for example, a golfer, right? They're in a certain they, – they swing the ball one way. And they, what happens is as they're going to swing the club, right, the club's going up into the air. It's a yielding action. They're absorbing force. And then as the club comes past their body, they're closing space, creating internal rotation – and then pushing out into external rotation to, slip, to, to hit the ball, right? What happens is, right, you're, you're really good at creating expansion and external rotation in one way. Why not train it the other way to get more out of your body? Okay. Right? So even though that you're not going to, you're not going to essentially, you know, swing the club the other way in a match, Training indirectly fills in the gaps that your body's not getting. So as a strength and conditioning coach, my goal is to keep an athlete in their sport longer. 
to make them better physically well-rounded from a general physical preparedness point of view. Okay. So, like, let's take your body as a canvas, right? And we want to be able to, to make this as robust as possible and hope that it has a carryover to your sport. For example, like, let's say, um, you know, you want to improve, let's say you want to improve isometric strength in your upper body for a better body lock position in grappling. Yeah. I'm not going to go do a fucking back squat to perform that, to, to be able to enhance that, right? It's not going to really, it, it's, it's like, well, you're going to have a carryover. No, not, not really. But if I get you doing med ball isometric squeezes or I get you doing, you know, isometric into negative eccentrics on, um, on pull-ups with slow eccentrics, yeah, that's going to have a better carryover to that exercise, to that movement, sorry, in the gym. What are your thoughts on static barbell holds? Isometrics, I love it. Yeah, I, that's what I do for my body lock passing. I'll just... I'll just do three sets of 30 seconds of just holding 315. And that just gets my grip so strong. Yeah. And look, I, I want to go back to, to what I was saying. Like, you don't just do one thing. Oh, if I need to be, get a better body lock squeeze, I'm not going to just do isometric squeezes against a bar with a med ball wrapped around my chest, right? You're going to have to be able to train the body through eccentric, concentric contractions as well as isometric but also expose your body to different stresses in the gym in a controlled environment. This is what gives you a more robust, uh, bigger toolbox to be able to, to become a better athlete. Yeah. I must say, um, you know knees over toes guy, right? Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on him? I think he's a great marketer. I think he's great at marketing. I think he's a lovely guy. What about his I, philosophies? There's nothing wrong with these philosophies. Mm -hmm. It's just the way that you market those philosophies and what you say behind them. For example, you've got no cartilage in your knee and you claim to be the man that fixes knees, right? Yeah. When you go and smash away at a frontal elevated split squat, driving your knee into deep knee flexion over and over and over again. Say a lot of my guys have meniscus tears in their knees. I get them jamming their fucking knee or they're jamming their, their leg into massive amounts of dorsiflexion with deep knee flexion. It's only going to aggravate that even further. Interesting. Right? So this is the thing with the one-size-fits-all approach and saying that I can bulletproof your knees. It's fucking bullshit. You don't like the you term can't. bulletproof, right? No, I can't stand it, man. It's <laughs> fucking winds me up because it's misleading and people think, man, if I do a front foot elevated split squat and I do some fucking Nordics and I do some tip raises, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be able to jump off a fucking, you know, three meter fucking basketball ring and land and bounce back up like nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and it's bullshit because as grapplers as well, you know the demands of the sport, right? Yeah. If someone grabs your leg and I'm new to BJJ and my fucking anxiety is through the roof as someone grabs my leg, I'm ready to tap straight away. Uh-huh. I don't want to risk it. There's no point. I'm not here to be the next Gordon Ryan. Uh -huh. But 
That being said, I could do all the fucking leg extensions. I could do all the plyometrics in the world. I could do, you know, the heaviest fucking squats. Nothing's going to stop me from getting a knee bar other than technique in BJJ and tapping. Uh-huh. Right? Freak accidents happen all the time. Does that mean, now this is where it gets confusing. Does that mean spending time in the gym is a waste of time? Absolutely not. It will minimize your risk of this taking place where we can strengthen tendons, ligaments, muscles to be more robust to be able to handle those demands. Hmm. Well, let me tell you. Um, so I, I, I come from like a West Side barbell um, background. Yeah. Well, I would I would do most squats right below parallel. You know, I would I I wouldn't really go ass to grass. But I remember one day I did um, one day I I, I did um, heel elevated squats, and some old school gym bro comes up to me. He's like, "What are you doing? That that's bullshit." And I never did them again. But now I see they're making a comeback, and everyone's doing the the heel elevated squats. So I started doing those. I started going ass to grass. I started doing the tibia raises and, you know, the ATG lunges. And let me tell you, man, I used to, when I used to put a uh, body triangle on someone, I felt like my knees were going to fucking explode. But now I could put a body triangle on someone, no problem. And also um, the direct calf training. I'm like, ah, my calves are tiny anyway. I, there's no point of even training them. <laughs> I started training them again. And just my shots, my body triangles, everything just feels so much better. Of course, man. And it's a no-brainer, right? If you look at the characteristics of the sport, and this is, this is what, what goes back to having a better understanding of movement biomechanics, you can see the demands. You can see what actions are taking place in those movements. And in the gym, they're never going to be the same. But if we can get it as close as possible, or we can strengthen basic movement patterns that, that mimic the characteristics of the sport, it's going to definitely have a carryover where, you know, your calves, uh, need, you know, they're pretty much one of the soleus, pretty much the strongest muscle in the body. And your Achilles tendon can take up to, you know, 14 times your body weight. So being able to have strong calves is going to help your penetration step and your explosive power in combat sports, there's no doubt. The, with the Westside method, I love Westside, right? I love Louis Simmons. I love the whole max effort. He's produced some fantastic athletes. The only issue we have with that, with fighters, is their schedule and time constraints, Exactly. To, you can't Those workouts take a it. long time. And when I'm doing one rep to three rep maxes and you're going to ask me to go train that night, forget about it, bro. Exactly. Too much compression. And what happens is to really, to really get that effect that you need to get the most out of that program, you can't be an intermediate beginner lifter. Like a majority of these combat, combat athletes that, that I'm working with, they have very little training experience in the gym. So utilizing RPE is a far better approach to training those guys in order to, to gauge intensity. But also stimulating, not annihilating, is the way to go. So if you look at not obviously managing training volume, and everyone's going to be different based on lifestyle constraint, age, 
you know, you've got fucking financial stress, family stress, yeah. all the stuff comes into play of your ability to recover from, from training, right? If you can actually look at, uh, you know, the, with the Westside method, it works great, but I would use, instead of working to a heavy single on the day, I would use an RPE attached to that, right? Let's work up to an eight RPE. Let's say you have a shit night's sleep the night before, your kid's crying all night, and, you know, you've got to do your S&C the next day, and on your program it reads, work up to a heavy double for, for a nine RPE. And you'd be like, fuck, man, 100 kilos feels enough for me on that day. That feels like a, a nine. You don't sit down and beat yourself up about it and think you're going backwards. You just go, hey, this is life. You know, I hit a nine. It felt like a nine on the day. I, I you know, shrug it off. I come back next week and I, I do it again, right? And that's what, that's a flexible training approach. I don't think, I think Louis Simmons to do it properly is a rigid system that works well for uh, more field-based athletes who, who don't have, the demands of combat sports with the high training volume and load. So, especially, you know, you know, sports that have seasons in them, like football, correct. baseball. Yeah. But really, let, let me explain RPE for my listeners real quick. So, RPE 8 pretty much means 8, you got two more in the tank. So, RPE 7 would mean you have three more in the tank. RPE 10 would mean that's you, that's the max you you can do. That's right, correct? You could use a you could use it like that. I don't I don't think it needs to be How do you use it? So rate perceived like I'll tell you what it stands for, rate of perceived exertion. This is a personal choice to the individual on how heavy something feels to them out of a rating of 1 to 10. Oh, right? okay. I always thought it meant 8 means you have two left in the tank. Well, yeah, that's one way to think about it, right? Because you'd go, oh, fuck, you know, an, an explanation of what an eight would feel like would be like, oh, fuck, that's a bit of a struggle. You know, that was quite heavy. Um, I don't think I could do an extra two reps out of that. Uh-huh. Right? And that's where that probably came from. I know a lot of guys use that as an example, but if you're a new lifter, how do you fucking know? Right? Right? If you're... If you're someone who's grappled your whole life and you're a fucking physical beast on the mat and you want to, you know, you feel like you've hit your technical limitations and you want to enhance athletic qualities and you're new to the gym, you know what I mean? It's like, well, how do you know you've got two more reps? You might have four more reps in you. You don't know, right? And that's why we use its personal preference to that individual where they can walk in and go, fuck, yeah, that did feel like an 8 out of 10 for me. And then they gauge off that. You go, all right, well, that was an eight last week. Let's, you know, let's try it again next week. Did it feel easier? Oh, I felt like a seven this week. All right, mm. cool. Let's add a little bit more weight and let's see. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's, all, it's all relative to the individual. Interesting. Yeah, I, I keep most of my RPEs to eight. For the majority of my early lifting, I didn't know any better. So I would do every single set to failure. <laughs> and There's that nothing was... wrong with that either, bro. There's really? nothing wrong with that. Man, working up to a heavy max on a day and then calling it there is beautiful because you're only stimulating. You're not annihilating your body. It's, weird. it's, it's when, the, when you start sacrificing form for load and you start treating yourself like a power lifter in, in, and you're, you're, you're doing too much axle loading where you're compressing the shit out of your body and you can't rotate and move, 
that's when it becomes detrimental to combat sports. Interesting. Um, probably the two main things I want to talk about on this yeah. are the rotational strength. And then the last thing I want to talk about, well, not the last, but probably the most important takeaway from the podcast is uh, direct arm training. Um, oh, yeah, because yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that you used to hate because I come from a powerlifting background where no one trains arms. And then I started doing direct arm training. But we're going to get into that after this. So I, I love strongman. I love Atlas stones, bending my – everyone says you need to keep your back straight. Um, how many freaking – forget about combat sports. How many fucking sports out there do you see where people's backs are always straight? And football, they're not straight. And wrestling, they're not straight. And <laughs> jumping, they're not straight. So training your spine in the bent uh, position, spinal flexion, spinal rotation, that's something I really wanted to hit home with on this episode. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you're very, you, very strong feelings on that. Mate, that's a, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, so my thoughts on this, obviously sport does not care about posture, right? Mm-hmm. Sport will expose you to vulnerable positions where you have to produce force. Mm-hmm. In the gym, we do that in a controlled environment where the spine is designed to bend and we train it through a full range of motion to be able to make you more robust for your sport, right? Mm-hmm. We get enough isometric training throughout trunk and spine under axle loading, being able to brace and resist movement under a barbell is enough to train the trunk isometrically in a good neutral spine position. What we do with our accessories is we try to counteract that to bring athletes into a more robust state to be able to handle, you know, the physical demands of their sport by being able to move, bend, under load. So we don't go and encourage, okay, you're new to the gym. I want you to flex the shit out of your spine and pull as much weight off the ground. We don't do that, Mm. right? We build into it. We start from a top-down approach. You might start with a Jefferson curl. You know, you might start with, you know, banded toe touches, being able to, to actively depress the rib cage and force yourself into flexion under load with minimal load, sorry, to expose you to that with very minimal axle loading is a safe way to do that. Uh, and that's something that I've noticed has ruffled a few feathers in the fitness industry. Is Because every freaking personal trainer tells you to keep your back straight. Well, but if you look at any deadlift world record, the guy's back is not straight. Well, what happens is around your stronger inflection, reality you are, right? Mm-hmm. And the T-spine under flexion pulling a weight off the ground just makes the leverage a lot better, right? Yeah. The shorter the range of motion I need to move away from, from you know, A to B means I'm going to be able to put more weight on the bar, the more efficient I'm going to move. So if I retract my shoulder blades and I shorten that range of motion under load, I'm not going to be at my shoulder blades aren't strong enough to, to hold that position. I'm going to fall into flexion 
and fuck up my set position, and that's going to pull me forward over the barbell. But if I start in a good position where my arms are long and I have a nice natural curve in the thoracic spine and I have a, a good neutral you know, lumbar spine, I don't care if the thoracic spine falls into more flexion, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's more efficient that way to be able to produce force off the ground. We don't, I don't encourage lumbar spinal flexion in a hip hinge off the floor. I don't encourage that, right? Explain that. So you don't encourage spinal flexion on a hip hinge off the floor? For a new lifter, no. For someone oh, yeah, for a new lifter, no. But for yeah, an advanced for someone, lifter, yes. Yeah, yeah, like for any of my fighters, I'm not going to get them. Like I would rather utilize. There's so many ways to, to train spinal flexion and better ways to train it from eccentrically loading yourself into that position, right, and building up to it. It's, yeah. You need to expose yourself to a certain amount of stress in order for the body to adapt. If you expose it to too much stress too soon, that's where it's going to be detrimental to your sport. Yeah. Right? That's where the, the strength and conditioning kind of, you know, takes away from that. So the goal here is to, to make, expose an athlete to more stress in a controlled environment to give them more options on the mats, right? Yeah. And someone, excuse me, someone who's more physically mobile, more athletic, more well-rounded will learn skills at a faster rate due to the to less constraints of mobility and range in the body. I can speak from firsthand experience, right? Taking up BJJ and trying to fucking swivel myself around on the ground to, to pull off a triangle and grab their leg and pull the arm across the body and you know get your, your adductors and knee flexion and foot over your leg over your foot to, to lock off a triangle. It's fucking hard. Right? Yeah. And the big things that stop me are not being able to achieve a certain position due to a lack of mobility and flexibility, which limits your gains and options on the mat. Same in freestyle wrestling. Right? Yeah. For example, I can't do, I can't, like, someone sprawls on me, I'm not shifting out of that. Like, I've got to back out of it or I've got to keep driving because yeah. I, I can't. I can't swivel it and I can't swivel out of it. I just don't have the range. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel strong there. I feel like I'm going to get injured there if I push it. So that limits your game, right? And the only person I've ever seen do so well with a, with a tight body is Isaac Michel. You think he has a tight body? Yeah, man. He's got, he's got very tight hips. He's very compressed through the body. He's very strong. But dynamically, he moves so well in a way that within his limitations. He's so good at the sport and knows how to position his body so well that he doesn't need large amounts of range to play his game well. Interesting. But I know that when we enhance that restriction and we improve his mobility and build strength at end ranges, He's going to be more of a weapon on the mats. Yeah, and he put on a lot of muscle. I, I was training with him two years ago, three years ago, when he was 160. Now he's walking around at around 185, 190. And he still moves yeah. like he did when he was 160. 
yeah, man, it's it takes time to to still obviously when you put the weight on like that, you still got to do the sport. You can't yeah. just go, oh, I'm gonna, you know, just do strength and conditioning and forget about the sport because you just won't be able to move when you go back. So yeah. you've got to you've got to be able to have a carryover where you may drill more technique to prioritize more things somewhere else. So that's a big thing with, with combat athletes as well is they want to do it all. And what happened is the sacrifice has to come from somewhere. And the majority of time people aren't willing to sacrifice in order to gain success somewhere else. Exactly. So, I mean, like we get the typical combat athlete or, you know, the guy that comes in who wants to run a fucking triathlon and compete in BJJ and put on muscle and get strong. Oh, God, I hate those guys. A fucking man. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, do you work? Yeah, I work. I work part-time, casual job, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, so how do you feel now? Yeah, I've got a bit of knee pain. I've got a bit of this. I've got a bit of that. I just can't put muscle on. I can't put size on. And I'm like, well, no wonder why you fucking can't because you can't recover from what you're doing. You're just fucking trying to do a million things at once and what happens is you're going to be shit at everything and you'll be a jack of all trades and a master of none yeah. that's so, that's with my kids program right now man all the parents come i'm like yeah you want to sign up your kid for jujitsu they said yes but we can only come once a week i said why like because he has basketball on monday soccer on tuesday tennis on wednesday i'm like bro your kid is gonna suck at everything <laughs> yeah and not master anything. It's like the mentality. Oh, it's I hate that mentality, man. I'll, I'll be honest with you, though. It's different with kids, right? So kids, I personally believe to build motor control and to build, you know, coordination. And for kids, exposing them to multiple different sports and letting them play and have fun, me being a father myself, is the best way to do it, man. I tried to take my kid to, to jiu-jitsu fucking two, three days a week. The kid hated it. He was so bored, right? All he wanted to do was run and tackle the instructor. Uh -huh. That's all he wanted to do. As soon as they, they brought out the tackle bags, he was in heaven. As soon as they brought out discipline and, you know, stand behind the line, touch your, touch your head, touch your shoulders, touch your knees, fucking bear crawl here, run there. He fucking hated it. How he old was he? He's only three. And that's oh, wow. probably why. <laughs> and that's probably why, right? And the kid just wants to play. Right? Yeah. And you're, you're, you're sitting there as a parent and you're fucking sweating and you're watching him and you're like, what the, f you know, you're like, what is he doing? You know, come on, you know, you got to sit back and remind yourself and go, the kid's only three. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I we only accept uh, five and up now after and, and so to, bad experience. And to be honest, every dad out there has some sort of inkling to have a little kid like Khabib. Yeah. Like little, a little disciplined soldier that just, you know, is respectful. He's holds himself well in, in a public, you know, setting. He's well-spoken. He's strong. He's, you know, got good morals. That's what we want for all our kids, right? Especially a boy. And, you know, when you take him to combat sports and they're, you know, they're not, <laughs> they're not focusing and you're like, fuck, you know, what am I doing wrong here? You got to remind yourself the kid's only three. Let him it's enjoy his life. Let him enjoy it, you know. So, yeah, it's I've taken a back step on that, and we just put him into gymnastics, put him into soccer, 
you know, just let him run wild until he's ready to, to start focusing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I usually like to keep these episodes uh, for about an hour because my audience attention spans, you know, not as good as the joke. So the last thing I wanted to go probably take us about 10 minutes to get the full spectrum here uh-huh. is the direct arm work. Um, so I come from a powerlifting background, bench press, rows, military press, overhead press, squats, deadlift. I did do grip work, right? Plate pinches and whatnot, but very little direct bicep work. Direct tricep work, yeah, but very little direct bicep work, very little direct forearm work. And when I started seeing your posts, because you you really, you're very passionate about this, I started doing the curls. I started doing the forearm curls. And I noticed it's been a huge, a huge up to my game because I used to take people's backs. I could hold them with my legs. I could hold them, but my biceps would just burn out. Guillotines, my biceps would burn out. Um, and I'm like, why am I, why, why am I burning out? I'm doing static holds. I'm doing barbell rows. And ever since I did that direct arm work and direct hand work, it's been a, it's been a night and day game changer. Mate, it makes complete sense, right? You got to, your hands are first point of contact in most combat scenarios. Yeah. Right. Well, what do you do to control your opponent? You grab them with your hands. Yeah. Right. You grab an ankle. You're grabbing their, their wrist. You're grabbing a tricep. You're grabbing collar tie. Right. Your hands play a, a big, a big uh, role in combat scenarios. Yeah. And the thing is, though, when you think about the demands of the sport, right? Hand fighting is like a jab in boxing. It yep. sets up the opponent to be able to expose them, to expose a leg, to move the opponent around, to, to open up the hips, to create space, to, to penetrate, to grab a leg, to whatever, whatever it may be. And even on the ground, there's arm drags everywhere in BJJ, right? Yeah. And the thing is, when you, you, you it's like any other muscle group, right? If you're going to expose yourself to, to combat scenarios where you're going to use your hands a lot, it makes sense to train it in a gym through isometric, eccentric, concentric contractions to be able to, to make your arms more robust for the sport. Mm-hmm. Not only that, it has a carryover to shoulder health, right? Training your bicep, help your bicep tendon, it'll improve your shoulder health, it'll improve your wrist health, your elbow health, um, and also strengthen your hands as well by training your fingers directly. So I'm a big firm believer that like it makes complete sense to train your arms directly. If you're not, it's just, it's, you're missing the boat on this. And it's a key resilience site, such as your neck, right? You, people are swinging off your neck. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a boxer. You, you're getting, you know, punches to the head. The stronger your neck is, the more you can minimize the risk of concussions. In all right? sports, including soccer. Any contact sport, right? I think training the neck in general for the, the, the corporate man is going to have yeah. a, a benefits, right? Even in non-combat sports, man. I know so many concussions happen from people getting uh, using their head in soccer. Yeah. Like, like anything. Not only that, I've got people that, corporate men, they've got bulging discs in their neck oh, from sitting down for long periods of time. 
you know, and they're, they're stuck in this gross, ex, you know, flex position, looking down or looking up and shoulders rolled forward. And it's amazing how a lack of movement can just, just cause that as well. So back to the arms, right? I, um, from personal experience, a lot of guys have, um, and myself, have medial elbow pain, like, you know, golfer's elbow or lateral epicondinitis, which is, you know, tendonitis on the outside of your arm. A lot of that stuff subsides when you start training your hands and arms directly two to three times per week. I found that to be a great balance, right? 100%. My elbows used to crack when I did yes. bench press or push-ups. And as soon as I started doing the direct forearm work, it's gone. Exactly. I'm, look, on all my programs, Build the Basics 101, Grappling Sports Performance, you'll see direct arm work in there two days a week as a minimum, right? Mm -hmm. And the direct arm work is training, the, training the, the forearms directly, training the elbow flexors, extensors, training through pronation, supination, radial deviation, ulnar deviation, uh, training your fingers isometrically, independently as well, right? Getting your pinky to work with your thumb. So also using fat grips, using towels, using ropes, anything that, that will challenge your grip indirectly where you can use, for example, I don't use straps on, on barbells when I do my RDLs. Um, I don't use, um, I always use a thumb over grip. I don't use the monkey grip or a suicide grip on anything. Mm -hmm. It just serves no purpose. I honestly believe the thumb plays a big role in grip strength and it needs to be strong. So yeah. When you do your pull-ups, do not throw your thumb over the bar. Ch challenge your grip through fat grips. Um, use isometric pauses. Use slow eccentrics. Use ropes. Use towels. Um, when you warm up for a heavy set on Romanian deadlifts or, or any hip hinge, do not use straps in your warm-up sets. Only use straps on your working sets until your grip gives out. That's a quick way of, of enhancing grip strength and endurance through the lower part of your arm. Mm -hmm. And um, now you said about ulnar deviation, um, a good a visual for people that are listening to this is grabbing like a broom and twisting your hand in different directions, you know, up, down, side to side. Yeah. That's kind of what he was talking about, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, if anyone wants to know more about it, I'll put a post up on um, the benefits of training your arms directly for hand fighting. Um, so there's heaps of stuff on my Instagram that, that explain what radial deviation is and ulnar deviation. It's basically moving the wrist. Um, so holding, let's say, for example, you're holding a broomstick out in front and you're pointing your thumb to the floor and then you're bringing your thumb back towards your face holding mm -hmm. a broomstick. We call that radial deviation. The opposite action to that is ulnar deviation. It's basically just a part of training the wrist. It's yeah. one action. It's two actions of the wrist, right? Then you've got pronation, supination, which I've found has been a game changer for, for anyone who's suffering medial and lateral um, pain in the elbow. Training that the, the wrist and the, the elbow to move through pronation, supination is extremely important. And that'll help tendonitis as well, right? Well, definitely, right? If you're not training it in, like, a lot of this stuff, a lot of these niggle, a lot of niggles, or we call them, what did you say, tweaks? Tweaks, yeah. A lot of these yeah. tweaks can subside with exercise and strength and conditioning. That's what we do. Like, 
we counteract the tweaks and the niggles in the gym. The gym's a therapeutic environment. So we need to be able to, to, to produce that in a gym setting or actually elicit the, that, that therapeutic approach in the right manner to, to keep you on the marks longer. And I don't care who you are, what you say, if you match someone who's at your technical level, but they are more physically well-rounded than you, they're yeah, going to beat you. They're going to beat your ass. I don't care what you say. Or <laughs> I'm very passionate about that. Technical abilities are matched. One person's more physically well-rounded. He's going to maul your ass over time. He's just going to wear you down and he's just going to outpower you. And he's going to use strength to get into those positions. And he's just going to control you. Like one of these guys I've been watching, he's a fucking freak, man. I'm, I'm still new to the BJJ game. Is uh, Jonotas Gracie? Jonota Gracie? Yeah. I think he just got popped, too. Yeah, I know. But they're all on it, right, to some degree. Yeah. And, you know, at that level, they're all on it. I don't care. But the way he fucking mauls people, man, it's just insane. Like, his, his control, like, of how physically strong he is. You know, it's it's good, right? And obviously someone like him, you know, who will just work on their technical abilities and have that physical, like, athletic base, they're going to be a beast, right? You look at Nicky Rod. You look at Nicky Rod. You look at fucking Owen, Owen Libsy, Libsy, I don't know how to say his name either, but, you know, just genetic specimens that, that are really physically well-rounded and gifted, um, that are just, you know, maybe not be as technical as their opponents, but they they have the, the physical attributes to control them. And that'll 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 be what gets them the win in the end. Well, pretty much that's what you're seeing, right? Is just that they're physical. Obviously, they're, they're technically gifted as well, but they may not be as technical as some of their opponents that they go against. But they're they're just more physically well rounded to be able to control where the match goes 100 and one last thing i wanted to bring up because i noticed you don't talk much about this what are your thoughts on static stretching i love it at the back end of the session now why at the back end and not the front end i hear a lot of people saying dynamic in the beginning static at the end great question it depends how you train mobility and flex like mobility and flexibility are two different things right yeah. so when you're training, working with mobility, to gain mobility and range, we talk about you're obviously doing it through movements, right? And you're seeing how much range you have through a certain movement. If we load a certain movement and we build time under tension at end ranges around a specific joint angle, you're going to enhance and lengthen tissues around that area and create a positive response in mobility. Static stretching from a therapeutic point at the end of the session, I like it. Mm -hmm. It's passive stretching, right? It's not active. You're just hanging out in the stretch at the end. And obviously our goal through mobility is to enhance passive passive stretching. Yeah. It's to enhance yeah. it, right? And the only way you can improve passive stretching is to do loaded stretching. Yeah. Right. 
the issue is where people get caught up is, oh, I only do passive stretching and I'm not getting more flexible. Well, no wonder why, hmm. right? There's not enough stress through the body to create the, the adaption that we're looking for to create change. Interesting. So it does serve a purpose, passive stretching, all forms of stretching. I just think it's better done at the back end of a session to promote relaxation and, you know, just the, from a therapeutic approach in that sense. Yeah, I, I, I agree I, with what you said. Yeah, I 100% agree with what you said, but I don't follow it because I personally, I feel like knowing your own weaknesses is a strength. And I know for a fact that after I'm done working out, I'm not going to lie down and stretch. So direct arm work, core work, uh, and stretching, three things that I always leave, I used to leave to the end. I take care of them in the beginning because I know if I don't, I'm not going to do them. Well, yeah, definitely. Like if you're, if you're um, I mean, warming up for combat sports versus warming up in the gym are two fucking different things, yeah. right? Someone is, go- is trying to, to hurt you. Someone is trying to, to break your body down to, to be in a more dominant position and to outwork you, right? Mm-hmm. So going in cold to that is stupid and just doing free rolls and warming up into it. Is not Which is so thing. common, sadly. Yeah, and it is, right? So that's why having, you know, working up a sweat and doing some active stretching, passive and active, for you know some isometrics some eccentrics some you know some plyometrics you know where you're working through higher velocities as well will definitely prime your body for what it's about to endure in in the sport 100 you're an idiot i'm sorry but like don't take this the wrong way but that old school mindset just roll around and warm up doesn't work if you're someone who's got like pre-existing tweaks and stuff where your knees are a bit sore, they're stiff, or you're recovering. Yeah, flow rolling is not going to help. It's not going to help. Like it, It'll help to a certain degree, but I would recommend that you do a thorough movement prep sequence mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. It's all it takes, 10 minutes. Then do your free rolls, and then start ramping up the intensity is a smarter way to go about it. Everyone makes fun of me because I warm up so much. Um, and then I'm like, hey, man, I'm also never injured. But they're like... <laughs> Mate, I feel I feel you. How old are you now? Oh, nobody knows my age. So you won't tell anyone your age. It's a secret, man. How old are well, you? I'm getting there, man. I'm 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 working up. I'm 36 now, turning 37 next month. Okay. And, and uh, I can tell you, I am that guy that fucking warms up. I Hell need yeah. to. I need to from a mental perspective. It makes me feel good. And I need to know that, all right, I'm feeling good. My body's limber and I'm ready to go. I need that. If I don't have that, it's playing on my mind in, in, in the situational sparring that we do. It plays mm-hmm. on my mind. I'm like, oh, you know, I just don't feel comfortable in that position yet. I'm just not warm enough. Yeah, ruin, it honestly ruins my training too. I, I need to be at least, I need to be drenched in sweat or at least have a film of sweat before I start my rolls. I cannot go into roll cold. I, I just feel 100%. horrible. Yeah, exactly. And what do you think, man? A lot of a lot of these issues, these injuries, these freak 
freak accidents and injuries. I saw Matt Fraser, who's an ex-crossfitter. A lot of these crossfitters getting into BJJ. They fucked themselves up. Like, he, he ruptured his knee, did his ACL, meniscus, and LCL, I think, in a warm-up. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I don't, know what, I don't know exactly what he did, but a lot of these issues do happen when people are cold and are not ready for to tolerate a certain amount of force. 100%. Um, so we just hit 66 minutes. Just wanted to ask right. you any, what's up? That went quick. Yeah, it went quick, man. It was fun. Any, any last words or any last plugs you want to say to the audience? Look, guys, honestly, strength and conditioning is only going to benefit your sport. Whether you're a hobbyist or a competitive athlete, you need it in order to be better on the mats and to produce long longevity. You should check out Grappling Sports Performance in my bio on Instagram. If you've got any questions about the podcast or anything that we spoke about, feel free to shoot me a message um, via Instagram. I'm more than happy to explain um, some of the questions that you have in further detail. And that's it, man. You can you can check me out at coach underscore Stephen Sayoon um, on Instagram. And I've got a lot of content out there to help a lot of combat athletes. And I hope to change the game from strength and conditioning point of view for combat sports. Hell yeah, guys. And I could personally attest a lot of his Instagram videos have helped me a lot, especially in my rehab and my prehab and my spinal health. So I strongly urge you guys to buy his program, check out his channel, and let me know what you think. Thank you so much for coming on, Steve. My pleasure, bro. Hey, Thank you have you. a wonderful day. Bye-bye. You too. All right, guys, I hope you liked that episode. Hope it was a good time. Um, give me some feedback. Let me know if you want more episodes like that. Um, but before you leave, before you leave, you know what you got to do. You got to go follow me on Instagram at K-O-O-L-R-A-K, at Immortals Jiu-Jitsu, at Rambling with Rack, Mike Rakshan on Facebook. Go buy my instructionals on BJJ Fanatics. Sultan of Strangle Scarfhold series, Iranian body lock systems, weapons of past destruction. Hope you guys have a wonderful day and you guys keep killing it. Mm-hmm.